0: to chew bubblegum and kick ass. Oh. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh.
1: Hello and welcome back to the When We Were Young podcast and our discussion of nineteen eighties dystopian cinema. If you missed the first part of our conversation with special guest Travis Duclo about the Terry Gilliam classic Brazil, go back and listen to episode 53, because it's a great time and because there will be a quiz on all this at the end. Now, Chris will lead us into the second of our 80s dystopia episodes by touching on some of the most prominent entries in the genre, like Videodrome and RoboCop. Before we all put on special sunglasses we found in the garbage and revisit John Carpenter's 1987 cult classic, They Live. Brazil, I
2: think, is a very British take on these particular issues, as is 1984, obviously. Another movie that I think really touches on a lot of this stuff from the 80s was Videodrome from 1983, directed by David Cronenberg. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren. Come to me now. Come to Nikki. And Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind, Videodrome will change your body. Long live the New Flesh. Which is about uh, sort of an evil uh, TV station that um, it's basically. Uh, showing snuff films and very violent and sexual content that uh, people become kind of obsessed with, but it ends up being sort of this larger conspiracy-embedded and, and very cronenberg
0: and, and strange. Funny you would say, the uh, the British and American, that that's the Canadian take on exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to kind of call this the American take, and then I was like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, yeah, it's the Canadian take Broadcast on it. Broadcast
1: television.
0: <laughs> What's, it's so interesting when you look at something like Videodrome, because... It is a filmmaker who is known for and has made his name on making extremely sexual and violent and sexually violent content. And then (laughs) making a film about the idea of creating a disease that infects and kills any person who is sick enough to watch essentially snuff films. Mm -hmm. And it's literally like depicted as, like, the VHS tape is actually,
2: like, an evil, like, throbbing presence, and the TV, he, like, literally melds with the TV, so it, it has a lot to do with sort of the technological stuff that was obviously a part of this whole stew in the 80s, that the media and TV were very much a
0: villain in pretty much all of this stuff. In and some
1: conduits for malevolent forces, Yes. Human and otherwise.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And it also had kind of this vision of the future that in that particular one was one of television ends up becoming our main way of resourcing any sort of information that we wouldn't know what was going on in the world anywhere if it wasn't for TV. And that's one way in which Videodrome ends up being a little bit dated, except that you can apply a lot of that to the internet and to just social media. And it's a little bit less controlled, but more at the same time. One thing, just kind of funny point on the fact that it is 1983, the format war is still going on, so most of the tapes you see in... Video drum are actually Betamax. They're <laughs> not the uh, v- VHS tapes.
2: Oh, wow. wow. That's funny. I didn't notice that. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, the 80s also had Max Headroom, who was uh, called the world's first computer generated TV host. He was actually uh, under four and a half hours worth of makeup because they did not have the technology to actually do that. Um, he was played by Matt Frewer, not Jim Carrey, but he is disturbingly Jim Carrey like. He's very rubberish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will play us a Max Headroom clip.
0: This is my Ma- Ma- Max Headroom. And what you're about to witness is one of the most sinister-sounding intros to a trailer
1: to one of the greatest epics ever produced in the history of t- t- television.
0: And there's more. Because you are going to see it as well.
1: Yes, it. Yes, it. Yes. yes.
0: Namely, the Max Headroom story. And afterwards, that is directly following, I want to talk to you about something even bigger. Namely,
1: Max Headroom.
2: So we just watched Max Headroom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I find Max Headroom now to be virtually unwatchable.
1: (laughs)
0: Virtually digitally (laughs) unwatchable.
2: I tried watching clips and I kept waiting. I was like, where's the part where you just start watching it? Because it, like, it, to
1: say nothing of like, where's the comedy? It's so weird to me that that was ever considered like funny, or I guess it wasn't considered funny because it failed.
0: Yeah, it didn't have a successful run at all. So I think that it's something we look back on and think of as being very quintessentially 80s and reflective of the times, and it is. Yeah. But it's not something that I think ever really had a good audience that was excited to see more Max Headroom. Right. Yeah, so in 1987, there
2: was actually a um, hack of two stations in Chicago where someone dressed as Max Headroom actually managed to infiltrate the the news broadcast as Max Headroom and just, you know, rant on, these videos are still online. They, but that is basically the most interesting aspect of Max Headroom. That's and amazing. Be, it, I, and I it that.
1: wasn't the actor just, like, losing his shit. And <laughs> he's like, you know what? You won't like me on TV. I'll take this shit on the road. <laughs>
2: it's actually an unsolved mystery is that no one knows who these people oh, who are that was yeah no one has ever like <laughs> figured it out
1: <laughs> <laughs> i
0: like that it's the
2: db cooper of
0: tv broadcasts
2: <laughs> in
1: 1987
2: uh, robocop was released directed by our beloved paul Verhoeven, <laughs>
1: our sweet paul <laughs>
2: <laughs> which like i was very aware of as a kid Um, just because it it seemed like the Terminator. It was like the other Terminator. And I didn't realize that it had such a satirical kind of American media bent to it. They say 20 seconds in the California sunshine is too much these days, ever since we lost the ozone layer. But that was before Sunblock 5000. Just apply a pint to your
1: body and you're good for hours. See you by the pool. I didn't watch the original RoboCop at all growing up and a lot of my friends were into it. But at the same time, I'm kind of glad I didn't, because I feel like I would have gotten that impression of it being, like, straight up and serious and would have totally missed all of the context of its satire. Um, But yeah, like, like so many of Paul Verhoeven's other movies, it is very, very bitterly satirical.
0: Yeah, I first saw, I think, RoboCop 3 before I had seen the other two because it was Mm PG-13 and so I so I was first introduced to it there and so and that one is takes itself seriously very hokey we have a a superhero essentially movie where Mm. uh, and, and it's it's bad. Uh, really bad. Uh, so that was my first introduction to it. And then there was the early 90s TV series, which was, again, really targeted at children. And I think there maybe was God, an animated that. version of it at some point. I think there was a cartoon. Yeah, I think yeah. Was no, there was cartoon. definitely a Robocop cartoon. Yeah, and so that was, oh, was oh, kind yeah. of the way that I saw it. And I think that it really did represent it that way. And it wasn't until a few years later, when I was a little bit older and I had watched the Terminator films also. And there is a really good uh, Frank Miller comic book series that was also turned into two different video games. That was RoboCop versus Terminator. Um, mm. RoboCop supplants himself in the mind of Skynet, and then in the future <laughs> rebuilds himself as a Terminator to then take down Skynet. Um, and it's in this world, RoboCop is the reason that Skynet comes about. Um, wow. That the technology used to build RoboCop ends up creating Skynet. Anyway, so uh, so there was there was this uh, so that that was. That was kind of like the early introduction. And then later on, I ended up watching it um, probably around the time Starship Troopers came out. And, uh, and, you know, at that point, I'm seeing the Nazi satire in Starship Troopers and seeing the uh, Reaganomics satire in Robocop. Yeah, he also made uh, Total Recall in 1990, which I think is
2: a nice capper on this sort of, like, 80s uh, dystopian version, which also deals with technology and crazy Verhoeven madness. Yeah. <laughs> there was also The Running Man in 1987, which was based right. on a Stephen King novel uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, set between 2017 and 2019, so now, <laughs> uh, about a TV show where criminals are executed uh, as
0: entertainment. What's really interesting, and it's kind of a good movie in some ways, uh, Running Man. It has some interesting ideas. Yeah, Uh, It's so different from the book. Um, And the book, I feel like, would make such a good movie if you were to Mm. really tell it the way that it is. Again, I think we referenced this earlier, um, plane crashing into a building is the climax, which Mm. obviously would not play today. Wow. Um, But it's it's an interesting thing that that that... Uh, that trope ends up being repeated and then it happened in real life years later Um, but the way that the game show actually plays out in the book is there are tons of these game shows where essentially people are gambling for their life Mm. and everyone in this world is so destitute and poor there's no jobs there's no universal basic income so everyone is just doing anything they can to get money so eventually this guy to support his family goes and auditions to be on a game show all of which have a very high chance of killing him. But his family will get the money if he dies. And they will be able to live, because they're all dying of disease and hunger. So then he ends up doing really well on all their tests, so he gets put on the highest prestige one, which is the Running Man. And then while on the show, they end up building this whole criminal background for him and defaming him so that anyone around will report him and will want him dead. And so they'll be cheering on his death, even though he's actually a normal, good person. That's more interesting than it sounds. Yeah, (laughs) yeah,
1: no, I've seen it. I've seen it. I think I saw it like a couple years ago, and it's got really good ideas, and it's like Mm -hmm. a really good setup. Um, I thought it was like pretty cheesy, you know, and definitely dated. Yeah. One
2: other 1987 movie that I think we can't not mention is Cherry 2000.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if you were going to bring this up.
2: (laughs) Yes, which is about (laughs) a man who is desperate to replace his beloved sex spot, and so teams up with a uh, scarlet-haired Melanie Griffith in order to get the original version of the robot.
1: maybe I can get in there and find this thing, but I need somebody riding shotgun in order to make it out in one piece.
0: I want you to chase those birds till they drop if you think it's tough to meet the right people now wait till you go looking for a Cherry 2000
1: who Among Us,
2: (laughs) I was not sure if anyone would have heard of Cherry Two Thousand.
1: That's so great! I'm so glad you brought it up.
0: Well, that is uh, is a you go
1: looking for a Cherry Two (laughs) Thousand.
0: That's a great representation of 80s misogyny, right? Yeah, that was practically like its own movie. That was a a three act
1: feature film. I feel like (laughs) that went from every scene in the movie.
2: I did not know that this existed. This was a year before Working Girl and like Melanie Griffith. That's crazy. Like, and this she's like this. Trashy,
0: like topless B movie girl. I, I,
1: I just she's a working girl, different industry.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will say, just looking up some quick trivia on it. It was filmed in 1985, released in 87. So there okay. was definitely a gap of like this movie may never see the light of day for her. Yeah, so uh, poor Melanie. Budget of ten million dollars, which is. <laughs> Nothing to scoff at for nineteen eighty five. More than they live.
1: <laughs> well, but I think the budget for that movie clearly went entirely into explosions in desert <laughs> landscapes. Because like every and other shot, red hair dye. Yeah, every other shot in that movie was like a rocket launcher.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so interesting though because it, it, like you were pointing out, it has that score, and so it's clearly trying to represent some level of romance and maybe a noir film or something like that. And then, but don't forget about the action and the tits. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Verhoeven wishes he had directed Cherry 2000. It's oh amazing that he didn't. That
1: would be that would be a version I want it to watch. It basically feels like the robot
2: version of Showgirls as yes, it is.
1: How many times does Melanie Griffith throw up on people in this movie? <laughs> that
2: was off screen. That will take us into They Live.
1: <laughs> they
2: Live, We Sleep. It was uh, directed by John Carpenter and written by Frank Armitage, who is also John Carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> It's based on the story 8 O'Clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson, which was originally published in 1963 and later became a comic book about a man who goes under hypnosis and then realizes that humanity is all controlled by malevolent aliens.
0: You've me a headache. Yeah, tell me about it. It took the hackers months to figure out how to do this.
1: The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society and we are their unwitting accomplices. Their intention to rule rests with the annihilation of consciousness. We have been lulled into a trance. They have made us indifferent to ourselves, Others, we are focused only on our own game. Please understand they are safe as long as
2: they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us
1: asleep, keep us selfish, keep us sedated.
2: The movie stars wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper as John Nada.
1: It's short for Rodolph.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it uh, co stars Keith David.
1: Yay! I have been waiting for Keith David to show up in any episode of When We Were Young because he's been in so many movies that I well, love was
2: and there's something about Mary
1: Right, he was, but it's but, but that also, was not like, a legitimate
2: Keith David. Exactly, and I was
1: like looking through his IMDb page after watching this, and it's like he is such a mainstay of my childhood and adulthood movie taste.
0: Yeah, it's just it, this goes to show how white your podcast is that you haven't had Keith David on yet. I know that's true. I, know. Um, I was I was in a small scene. I was in a feature part in a bad movie that Keith David was in, and I actually felt like. Kind of starstruck being around him. Because I totally he's, would. Yeah, because he, he has a presence. He is a movie star. And and I actually thought that watching this movie that like Roddy Roddy Piper, not a movie star. This guy this is just a guy who happened to be good at wrestling, who is in this movie, who has a mullet. Um, Keith David shows up on screen and it's like, Oh, that's that's a guy I want to pay attention to. I want to know his story.
1: Oh yeah, that's the thing, and and it's like that's that's why I'm like so interested in him and all the crazy roles he's had for over such a long career. Because in every single one, he is such a presence on screen and so interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he also like does a ton of voice acting, which I love. He's on like BoJack Horseman, is yeah. a lot of voices. Um, but yeah, it's like the first instant he shows up, you're 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 focused on him.
2: Mm-hmm. He's like the anti Morgan Freeman. Like if you want to be bothered instead of soothed, <laughs> you get Keith
1: David.
0: Uh, like the cure a for botherer. The cure for Morgan Freeman in the uh, Shawshank Redemption is watching Keith David and storytelling. Storytelling.
1: story-telling.
0: storytelling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they live costs uh, between three and four million. So
2: John Carpenter is still working on a pretty low budget.
1: Oh yes. Oh yes. And it's like a lot of his earlier features were just tiny shoestring budgets. It grossed 13
2: million, so it was not a runaway success, but it at least uh, made a profit. Released on November 4th, 1988. Uh, It was originally slated to be released two weeks earlier. Supposedly, it was moved to not comp. Supposedly, it was moved to not compete with Halloween 4 Hmm. in theaters, but um, also, it was moved to the week of the election the presidential election in 1988. And uh, uh, Carpenter's have been very vocal that uh, it's a very anti-Reagan movie and so I think maybe he wanted this in people's minds as they were going to the polls.
0: Right, right. Wanting to try to prevent Bush from taking office uh, which, you know, of course led to the great 88 to 92 era we all know and love Um, (laughs) one thing that's interesting about that with it being like not competing with Halloween 4 is that he obviously directed the first Halloween but Halloween 4 was also the studio reversing on what they had decided to do with Halloween 3 which was essentially to do an American horror story type thing of every year they were going to have a new Halloween movie that was going to be a unique story taking place in the same world of something Halloween related happening in a horror movie setting and uh and so it was going to be you know essentially the same as American horror story every season there's a new gimmick a new thing that it's about and uh, people <laughs> hated this. People demanded Well, and the result refunks. was Halloween
1: 3, Season of the Witch. Yeah. Which also didn't have witches, right?
0: Isn't <laughs> didn't have it? witches. It was masks. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was an evil corporation, actually. Silver so
1: Shamrock or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man.
0: But, uh, but anyway, so there was kind of a lot riding on that Halloween 4. They they really expected people to come out in droves to see Michael Myers show up again. Which they did not, I believe, right? Um, yeah. I don't yeah, think so. I mean, they made... They made three more or two more in that series before then rebooting it again with H2O in 98? Yeah, 98. See last episode. <laughs>
2: <laughs> My favorite trivia from They Live is uh, Shepherd Fairy, <laughs> who made an entire line of clothing that I had no idea was connected to this, but the Obey T-shirts
1: ripped off yeah R- ripped off is the word
0: <laughs> he borrowed the idea of
1: <laughs> by copying <laughs> with, it directly with
0: coincidentally another professional wrestler Andre the Giant's face as right, the uh, right.
1: co-opting the image of a dead man
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and stealing the work of someone without giving attribution Shepard Ferry is a multimillionaire and a transparent fraud and this is a great time to bring that up that's fine I,
2: I don't think John Carpenter was trying to make a fashion line out of this movie so I don't see any reason with capitalizing anything wrong with capitalizing on it fair enough I saw that line of clothing growing up all the time and had no idea that it was any connection to any kind of movie. So to find that out, like I found that out before I even watched this movie, I was like, what? And he just, since this was sort of a political movie, it is interesting that he later went on to do the Barack Obama Hope poster. Mm
0: -hmm. It's an interesting example of how someone promoting a message of anti-capitalism and using a reference to something like They Live and having a tongue-in-cheek obey with a scary face on it is also, like you're saying, multimillionaire and part yeah. of a corporate machine and, you know, jamming down people's throats, their imagery and their messaging and maybe has some uh, political conscience where he's going to do something for Barack Obama that he wouldn't have done for John McCain. But at the same time, he definitely charged the money for it. Right. Yeah, it's a lot like the Apple commercial. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I obviously saw that before I ever saw They Live or even knew it was a movie and had, had no idea it had any precedent. Um, but like now that I know it, it's, it seems so cynical to me, like such a cash grab mm-hmm. um, that so perfectly and neatly eliminates any actual meaning or context the thing actually had.
2: Well, I find it very, like, interesting and meta because I saw this word obey everywhere without thinking about it, without even thinking of what the word obey means. It was was just, like, a brand name. And to, like, learn that there's this actual meaning behind it, which is the reverse of what happens in the movie, is that people are seeing magazine images and billboards, and what's really behind it is the word obey, is I find that very, like, amusing.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: The movie got mixed reviews. A positive review was from the Chicago Tribune. Dave Kerr said the looniest movie of the season and also one of the most engaging. It got several zero star reviews as well, including one from the Washington Post. Richard Harrington said the plot for They Live is full of black holes. The acting is wretched. The effects are second rate. Did you guys see They Live uh, back when they lived in 1988 or, (laughs) uh, or more recently?
1: No, I did not see it when I was four years old. (laughs) Sadly, that was not a home-taped VHS uh, taken from HBO. No, I didn't see They Live until I started going on a really serious John Carpenter tear uh, about a year or two ago. I watched Halloween for the first time in a long time. I had watched The Thing. I've since watched Assault on Precinct 13, which I think is a perfect film, which is one of his first movies. And, like, Starman, I've, I've basically rounded most of the important bases of John Carpenter and have just come to so deeply love and appreciate his let's-fucking-try-anything attitude and approach to storytelling and, like, world-building. He attains a kind of balance between a premise that is just inherently silly, almost to the point of slapstick, but also, like, committing to it so seriously that you roll with it. I'd say like Big Trouble in Little China is a really great example of that where he does like both of that like both sides of that at the same time. And I think that was the first of his movies that I watched being like, "Oh, I know this is a John Carpenter movie" hearing from film buffs that like, "Oh, John Carpenter's like kind of an off the wall person because his movies seem like they'd be more blockbustery and mainstream, but he's like such a cult director in and of himself." Mm -hmm. so I, I only saw they live for the first time about a year or two ago at most and I am a political addict so like I instantly felt very deeply in love with this movie for the way that it's kind of very deliberately and methodically anti capitalist but in such a cleverly visualized way having this device of the sunglasses that kind of changes your perspective that's kind of a story element and a plot element in so many stories you like find the talent or the magical artifact or whatever it is that opens up that unknown world to you and shows you and gives you power that you didn't have before at the same time there's so much that's just kind of inherently silly about like rowdy rowdy piper and his mullet but again it's like i knew going into it that that's what john carpenter was and that he is both like super campy and super committed at the same time and for me like yeah even from the first time it definitely worked to me
0: yeah uh i saw this for the first time in 96 i had a Because of Scream and Escape from L.A., I had a want to recap John Carpenter movies I hadn't seen. I was 11 at the time, so I went through and watched, seen Halloween, hadn't seen The Thing, so I watched The Thing for the first time, um, Escape from New York. A lot of those movies I caught up on, And, and They Live was one that stuck out because... Obviously, as you're going through them, it seems like, well, why isn't Kurt Russell playing this role? And yes. <laughs> obviously, right? it was written for Kurt Russell. And yeah. then, for whatever reason, it ended up being Roddy Piper playing the Kurt Russell part. And I had actually grown up watching a lot of professional wrestling. up until awesome. Up until probably, like, age eight or nine i would say I, it was when i dropped off but roddy piper was my favorite as i was growing up largely because like i identified as very irish scottish and so the fact that he came out in a kilt playing bagpipes was very <laughs> cool to me when i was like five or six I love this so much.
1: You were like mathematically the perfect guest for this. <laughs> that's so great because, like, I read so much about Roddy Piper as a wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chris, I think, like you did, went down a bit of a rabbit hole of like looking up Rowdy Roddy Piper because I had remembered that name yeah. just from my friends who I grew up with who were really into wrestling, and mm-hmm. I was I never watched it. I was never a part of that. I I think that's kind of to my detriment because I never appreciated how much of it is just. Just kind of live theater mm-hmm. and like the theatricality of that i think is a thing that probably would have appealed to me if i would given it the chance um but roddy, roddy piper was always like a person who i had heard the name of and who was very associated with wrestling to me so it's really cool that like you were already a fan of him from that
0: well thank you i'm glad i'm cool
2: <laughs> <laughs> whereas i had no idea who he was i probably looked it up the first time i saw this movie and then forgot again and had to look it up again And saw, like, Roddy Piper, I'm like, I'm not familiar with this actor. And then I realized it was because he's not really an actor. (laughs) He's not an actor. And I did not care about wrestling whatsoever. So beyond, like, knowing Hulk Hogan, I really
0: had no knowledge of wrestling. Right. And Hulk Hogan was really, I think, the first one to break through to mainstream media outside of wrestling. And then, like, Andre the Giant, maybe. And I think Roddy Piper was trying to follow in their footsteps and didn't quite succeed here. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I just saw this movie... Only a few months ago, I think, for the first time, while secretly preparing for this podcast. (laughs) Secretly? Secretly.
1: (laughs) Yes. Lord knows what else he's hiding from.
2: I was watching the movies like Videodrome, because I just kind of became interested in this whole 80s technophobia and dystopic aesthetic. So I was trying to see which ones, you know, kind of fit into the theme. And so I watched this one. This is probably one of the later ones that I watched. And it was ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) And that's kind of what my opinion was so i went back and watched it obviously again for this and ended up really appreciating it as a really as much as like all of these movies have so much in common especially media satire or kind of lampooning the media this one feels very different it has a very different tone to it it's very campy the title they live feels like very much like a 50s b movie
1: yes um, like a, like you expect to like hear it announced with like a news Announcer voice on the newsreel or something, right? Yeah, they live <laughs> an Olson Wells radio production.
2: <laughs> Those black and white effects of the aliens, I guess they are, mm-hmm. feel very like fifties. They look very fifties too. Like it has that sort of throwback. 50s-ishness, but also a very, very 80s aesthetic as well, with like the casting of a wrestler and mm-hmm. a mullet and and that sort of
1: thing. <laughs> so um the mullet is the co-star of this movie. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Or it's yeah. really a yeah. co-lead if you think about it. <laughs>
2: it's really a fascinating entry, I think, in the whole dystopic mass I really of
1: films. I totally I couldn't agree more, like, especially re-watching it this time around. Like, I really actually feel like this is one of the most anti-capitalist movies I've ever seen, and in such a direct Way, but again, such a clever way. Like, I love that process and how long it takes, even for Roddy Piper's character, to like come to grips with what he's seeing. And he's like literally dumbstruck by it, and like (laughs) stumbling around in this kind of monochromatic but more honest and objective view of the world than he's ever actually had. And I love how that's the vehicle for the anti-capitalist kind of perspective of the story. And I also love that his character is grounded as such a working class, literal everyman calluses on his hands, like stiff. Obviously like Roddy Piper was not a great film actor, but I think there's that aspect of his almost dopey naivete and puppy dog eyes that really kind of works for this character. Again, very much within that John Carpenter tradition where like you can just as easily laugh at it for being ridiculously silly. Because it is. And I also think that like Keith David and his performance really elevated Roddy Piper. I feel like the movie works. It definitely could have been made with a better lead actor. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: I agree with Keith David. Any of their scenes together are absolutely elevated and it feels like a different movie at times when you have it the two of them. Yeah, but- I feel like Keith David actually makes Roddy Piper a decent actor <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and then um to, to your point about like the dopiness kind of plays to the movie's strengths in a way, there is a postmodernist take that you could have on this of Roddy Piper being the average American and him being a guy who's kind of lost and confused in the world and that he's being presented the truth for the first time. And like an average dumb person, he has a very hard time dealing with it and his reactions seem implausible and the way that he behaves in these scenes don't really make sense and he doesn't really <laughs> behave like a real person. But a lot of the time when we're watching a movie, we're watching a uh, like acting out of how we would like someone to be and not saying that he's doing a naturalistic take. But his dopiness is kind of a reflection of if you took random, uh, you know, red state person and presented them with all the facts, (laughs) how they would actually respond to that.
2: Yeah, Yeah, definitely. We need a box of sunglasses. We need a really (laughs) big box of sunglasses. (laughs) Is what we would need here. Yeah, I think also his performance worked for me. (laughs) Somehow.
1: Yeah, Um. it's like on paper, nothing about this movie should work at all.
2: It reminded me a little of Elizabeth Berkeley in Showgirls, where it's, like, (laughs) sort of a terrible performance, but also a
1: perfect performance for the material.
2: Like, normally the story would be done with sort of an everyman character, which he is, but in this really dumb way. Like, usually the everyman is more of, like, a normal family man or something, and it, it would be that. And this guy is just, like, a dude, like, on the construction crew. Like, there's nothing interesting about him. He brings nothing to the table like i don't know a thing about this guy or like there's nothing about him where we think like oh like this guy has the skills to take this down he's literally just wanders into this
0: plot he's a drifter yeah, yeah. He, he's and a his, drifter His
1: only given name his character name is nada yeah
0: he's not yeah. his name is never spoken in the movie right uh in, right. The, in the short story his name is john nada so they just listed him as nada but <laughs> uh, you know essentially saying nothing that he is no one yeah, he just, like, wanders into the church, and he is
2: dumb. <laughs> so when he first puts on the sunglasses, he basically just tells the aliens to their face, like, I can see you. And, like, he's just doing these weird insults that feel like almost like fourth wall breaking, like, performance art or something. Because he's, like, telling these jokes, but it's like, who are these jokes for? Like, there's no one here, like, the only people here are the aliens, and you probably shouldn't let them know if you know that they're evil now, you can see them. It's it's insane, and yet somehow it feels right. Our
1: ideals, oh. vision. Excuse we don't want me. To just survive.
0: You know, we want to you look succeed. like your head fell in the cheese dip back in nineteen fifty-seven. <gasps> you, you're okay. This one, real fucking ugly. Oh. You see, I take these glasses off. She looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on, formaldehyde face. That's what we got. That's enough out of you. You get out or I'll call the cops. Call the cops? You know what you need? You need a Brazilian plastic surgeon.
1: I've got one that
2: can
0: see.
1: Yeah, well, and I also feel like anyone's rationalizing mind would have similarly insane reactions to seeing something that insane. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's literally deranging, it's mind-bending to have all of your literal perception of reality flipped upside down immediately. Sure. Sure. Yeah,
2: it's a it's a weird vision of humanity because there's this rebellion out of the church, which I think is full of characters that we m- normally find like more admirable or more worthy of following in a movie because they're actually like actively doing
0: something, and he's just sort of like putting on sunglasses and making fun of things. Well, and then his next step is he's going to kill them. He's just yes. going to kill as many as he can. That's his solution. Yeah, he has no actual evidence that these people are evil. Right. That there's anything wrong? They look ugly. <laughs> it's
2: basically his evidence for being able to kill them.
1: Yeah. It's a very skin-deep judgment here.
2: Yeah. The fact that the movie goes with him and, and embraces his dumb id so much, and yet, like, normally I would find that kind of repulsive... And yet, because this movie is just kind of throwing everything in your face so blatantly, like, the messages, once they're revealed, like, through the sunglasses, are as blatant as you could get. Obey, consume, money is, this is your god. This is not a subtle movie in any way. It's pretty much the most out there... Saying what its metaphor is Absolutely. that I can possibly mm-hmm. think of. Yeah. Absolutely. And the fact that this character is also just a guy who kind of stumbles through and says whatever he's thinking, he feels a little Trumpian to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. if. <laughs>
1: I don't think he's Trumpian, because he's interested in action that goes just beyond himself. He's not narcissistic and egomaniacal. He doesn't try to, like, change the world into his own worldview. He's
0: trying to wake other people up as well. Trumpian, maybe not Trump, but Trump supporter-ish in the way of his solution to a problem is murder. And violence. Oh,
1: that's of, not just Trump supporters.
0: Yeah, sure, but that's uh, I would say indicative of them as well as the idea that like as soon as he has some small bit of information, he extrapolates that to be a giant conspiracy to the to the effect of essentially QAnon. So I think that he uh, you know has this very small worldview that he turns into something much bigger because he's given information he's not ready for.
2: Right and yeah, he just like kind of goes with it, and then he's like, "These people are different. Must be
1: evil. Let's kill them." Like, there's no deeper wrestling with anything. But they act evil and reveal themselves to be. It's not like he's going on no evidence.
0: Uh, He goes on the evidence of, well, okay, so we have the signage. The signage is our best evidence for them being bad, right? That they are telling anyone who can't see this stuff subliminally to obey, reproduce, and marry, you know, various things like that. So that's good evidence for there's some malevolent force going on. He then sees people that look different with Mm -hmm. the glasses on versus off. And then once they identify that he can see them, they all talk into their devices, descend upon him. He runs, goes into an alleyway, and has police officers tell him to come with them. We won't hurt you. Please come with us. And then he shoots and kills them, then flees and decides he's going to shoot and kill as many as he wants, while saying his wrestling slogans along the way, with uh, (laughs) chew chew bubblegum and kick ass. The really famous line from this was actually something he had worked up for a wrestling thing. that. He then decided to deliver as an ad-lib in this movie
2: which makes so
0: much more sense as a wrestling slogan doesn't it? <laughs> it? makes sense now as opposed to an announcement <laughs> that I'm going to now. murder all
2: of you it really makes no it's sense even... and yet it's a fantastic line of dialogue
1: it is <laughs> yeah there's so many great lines in this movie but I, I do think it's distinctly not Trumpian because again when he is then exposed to like the underground resistance group of people and like also the, the like blind preacher who in the beginning of the movie like lays out basically the entire plot but we think he's crazy because he's this ranting guy. When he falls in with this resistance crew, like, he does learn his perceptions or some of his perceptions about the scope of this were were accurate and also that it, like, is broader than he even imagined. Like, it's not just his gut feeling that he's going on here uh, i think it starts as just as gut feeling but also i wanted to talk about the way that this movie and the story it tells i think it would have to be this blunt and have an embodiment of that systemic view that is as obvious as like a pair of glasses in order to make the kind of broad point in in, in order to take on a subject as big as capitalism because it suffuses so many layers and levels of society. And obviously it's not like this movie addresses every complexity of capitalism in all its levels, but it's certainly very directly taking on the America that 80s Reagan capitalism built. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it does it in what is definitely like a blunt way, but it's such a clever way to me that I give it a wide berth.
0: (laughs) I like it, especially for the imagery's sake, the idea that if you were to drive along any freeway or boulevard in the city and look at any billboard, essentially what you're seeing is obey, consume, reproduce, have a family, do all of these things to make you an obedient member of society and not someone who would be at risk. Yeah, and that goes to the
1: same thing we were talking about in Brazil of like how capitalism sets up the illusion of choice when Mm -hmm. really you're just
2: choosing between obey or consume.
1: Exactly, (laughs) right. Colors of
2: ducts. I think Brazil is so complicated in a lot of ways, and you have to really unpack the ideas. And this is the very opposite. I don't mean this is an insult to the movie, but this is kind of like the dumb version of Brazil. Sure, in much more surface level. Yeah, it's like
1: it surfaces that essentially, like in a lot of ways, subliminal kind of programming.
2: Yeah, to, to the extent that, like sunglasses, like what could be a more obvious thing for like I once was blind and now I can see is like that he just puts on these magic sunglasses. There's nothing like that in Brazil. So, like Brazil, actually forces you to kind of think through these things, and actually, like you don't get it at first, and then this, like, literally, you put on the sunglasses, and it shows you everything that you need to know about this movie. It's a very interesting contrast, I think, between the two and how
1: they kind of sell the same message. Absolutely. And like another thing, Brazil doesn't have is a ten-minute wrestling sequence in an alley. (laughs) It's
0: five and a half, but still
1: that was in the Love Conquerors all version. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of that movie. Yeah. Um,
0: But just just talking about the anti-capitalist message very briefly is what I think is effective about this as a film to create that message in how blunt it is, is that you can just take away the layer of supernatural and the story is exactly the same. There are people in power who are constantly sending out this messaging, who are trying to suppress a majority of society for their own personal gain. And it doesn't matter if that's aliens or right. if it's other humans. Right. The message is the same. And if you have a conversation with somebody after watching this movie who maybe is just getting that for the first time and things like, oh, wow, that... How crazy would that be in a matrix blue pill, red pill situation? Then to kind of suggest to them, well, how is that any different from the way the world is now? Is such an easy turn to open their mind to that.
1: I really do appreciate, just to emphasize this again, that like Roddy Piper's character is so working class poor because then it ripples through his direct lived experience of not being able to find a job. Mm -hmm. Of being treated shitty by his bosses, because the same people who are the owners of society, in fact, whether they're aliens or not, are the same people responsible for people not getting paid fair wages for their work.
0: Mm -hmm. Or uh, forcing them out of the one place they found to live because they're all too poor to be able to afford houses, so they're living in a homeless area of downtown L.A.
1: Yeah, that's the other thing. Like We talked during our discussion of Brazil about how images from these things kind of hit home for us mm-hmm. in our dystopian present. Roddy Piper's living in this homeless encampment with this kind of ragtag group of people. And at one point, the police come with a bulldozer and riot gear and all that stuff and raid the encampment and destroy it. And the exact same thing is happening here in Los Angeles. Uh, we have a simultaneous crisis in how housing, like the lack of affordable housing, which, of course, also part of that is companies that don't pay living wages to people so they can afford rent. And from that, we're also having a homelessness crisis in California, which is one of the bluest, most liberal states in the country. I think part of what is so radical about this movie is that it takes on no real, like, specific partisan thing. It just takes on the way that the overall whole system above all the partisan bickering and stuff is actually operating. I like that it uses the aliens as the kind of metaphorical vehicle for that.
2: Yeah, I work downtown. I actually work really close to Skid Row, which is where all these homeless encampments are, and literally see what looks like this movie every single day, and it's not an exaggeration. Actually, it's in this really, movie, in it's fact, really it's probably worse. Any, it's now. very
1: realistic. Like, and they and they literally will take bulldozers and like people people moving equipment quote unquote and like non-lethal weapons and raid these places and destroy the only structures that these people actually have to inhabit. Um, and it's it's had to get to the point where they had to uh, like try to roll back criminalizing people sleeping in their cars, and they're still like trying to fight that on the city level. It's it's kind of insane. And yeah, the the sequence where they destroy the encampment was like it hit me really unexpectedly hard.
0: Yeah, um, just talking about uh, films that rail against capitalism and uh, and that kind of point out the issue that. All of these systemic problems that we have really are at the top, that that is the only way to solve a majority of the problems that we face politically and in our daily lives. Sorry to Bother You, which came out earlier this year, really, really excellent film that has a great critique of how the identity politics that are so frequently focused on would be resolved were we to resolve the economic problems that are stemming from the very top.
2: Yeah, I thought of Sorry to Bother You as well with both of these movies in kind of very different ways Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it borrows a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, And yet, of course, represents, you know, a very different um, community of people that, you know, these are obviously, like, pretty white movies. I guess there's Keith David, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, are essentially talking about white protagonists. And that movie is a lot like these in that although these are talking about such bleak things, they're both very funny movies, which is not something that we see very much of our dystopias now looking like. In fact, they're very bleak. And Sorry to Bother You is one of the few that actually feels like it was made in the spirit of these 80s movies and kind of just like if you haven't seen it, you know, I won't I won't ruin it, but really throws everything in there and, and goes bonkers, uh, as bonkers as possible, just to
0: hammer home its point. Yeah, and, like, gets very literal with it to a ridiculous degree as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of my favorite films so far this year of the, I think, 100-plus that I've seen at <laughs> <by> this point.
1: <laughs> also, I mean, I really, like, I appreciated so much more re-watching the movie this time. Um, not just, like, the lines, um But I so at one point in the movie, uh, one of like the scientist guy is talking about how the creatures are actually warming Earth's climate to make it match their own home planet. Like that's like talking about like climate change, and they're they're like quote unquote free enterprisers developing Earth as their third world, uh, and basically like fattening us up to consume us. Yeah, this is a fascinating movie. I think
2: just because it is so simple and so straightforward that there's no... I don't think there's any nuance at all anywhere in this movie. (laughs) I mean, like, it it just, like, has... Here's a six minute wrestling sequence, and it's just basically about the wrestling and (laughs) the conflict. Like, there's nothing deeper like going on there. Two men
1: enjoying each other's (sighs) bodies in an alley. What can be more natural than that?
2: That
0: wrestling scene in the alleyway. It is so painful to watch. It is so boring. I
1: oh, see. I appreciate it. Did you really?
0: It's one of
2: those things that is boring for a long time and then becomes so boring that it's funny (laughs) again. Yes. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. I
1: think it traverses that circle several times. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah in a way that i don't think would have mattered nearly as much if it were a short fight
0: sequence like if
1: there's i think that's a kind of radical experimental filmmaking on john carpenter's part
0: i think unintentionally so <laughs> uh, totally because, unintentional because yeah you're right that it does it goes to these depths of like and then there are long sections of it like a wrestling match where they're just laying there both of them you know, nursing their wounds, getting ready for the like, all right, I got enough drink for they another get, punch. Like,
1: they get John McClain levels of
0: fucked up in this movie. Like, there is. <laughs> but all in one scene. All in one scene. Right? And <laughs> they, they do it to each other. They never right. get hurt by the aliens. That's, tr- that's <laughs> true. That's <laughs> true.
2: Yeah, I I mean it feels a bit like I don't know, some sort of meta commentary on like watching wrestling and do we like watching violence, you know, that it that it's kind of meant to sedate us as well and that wrestling is also famously like fake.
0: You know, it it's right. not real violence. And- no, you're I I think you're you're on with that. And the film actually has in the closing sequences all of the uh aliens are now revealed to be themselves. There are a bunch of newsreel things going on where we're seeing different people being revealed to now be an alien, and one of them is a news commentator complaining about violence in the media, and they call out John Carpenter specifically, saying, you know, he needs to have more restraint as a filmmaker in uh, the sex and violence in his movies. And so uh, the film is very aware of those kinds of criticisms and of the idea of, you know, the kind of human obsession with violence and how we do desire for and thirst for an outlet for it.
1: Okay, so here are just some great lines I love from this movie. There's a line where Roddy Piper says to like one of the creatures that he's now looking at in its real form, you'd better call a Brazilian plastic surgeon, <laughs> which I think is clearly foretelling the film Brazil <laughs> by several decades. Um, of course, the I've come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass line is just incredible. I, unlike Chris, I believe it needs no context nor justification.
0: <laughs> so and you it they, has none. So. If, if someone walks into a <laughs> so bank and says that now, you know what's going to happen.
1: Right, <laughs> right. That's true. I think they have active measures against
0: <laughs> bubblegum. Yeah. If someone and doesn't, well, ass. no, if someone doesn't have bubblegum and they walk into their, better watch <laughs> that's out. How you know. That's if the warning sign. If they're chewing bubblegum as they walk in with a shotgun, they're probably okay.
2: I just wish he was chewing bubblegum at some other point in this movie
1: to justify <laughs> that line. He should have been chewing gum, and he like should have like ended the scene by like putting it under a desk or something. <laughs> okay, another line I love. I got news form. Gonna be hell to pay, because I ain't daddy's little boy no more. Brother, life's a bitch, and she's back in
0: heat. <laughs> 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 I also liked uh, Formaldehyde Face, which is what he calls the woman in the grocery store. I like the moment of him insulting the woman in the grocery store. Then he turns to this old Asian woman and says, you, you're okay. Yes. But you. I (laughs) love that.
1: Yes. I love that moment, too. It's really great. Yeah. And then there are also some really good monologues that I like. There's, uh, maybe they've always been with us, those things out there. Maybe they love it, seeing us hate each other, watching us kill each other off, feeding on our own cold fucking hearts. Because again, that's one of those things that can totally apply as a criticism of plutocrats and oligarchs, and not just to aliens. And it's also interesting because in more recent years, you mentioned QAnon earlier, but one of the predecessor conspiracies of that were the idea that our society is ruled by these lizard people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder to what extent that conspiracy was kind of informed by this movie.
0: <laughs> I'm sure quite a bit, because there there is a big, super alt-right conservative following of this yeah. movie that John Carpenter had to eventually Go to Twitter to debunk and say no, this is not what he meant. This was a criticism of Reaganomics. Yeah, but uh, oh, but on- I listened
1: to the commentary on the Blu-ray this time when I watched it, and he's super upfront about it. He's yeah. like, no, I made this movie specifically to like criticize Reagan's America.
0: Yeah, and I mean, again, with the election targeting and all of that, there there's so much evidence toward that, but. For a lot of those people out there who, you know, listen to Alex Jones and that kind of thing, they literally believe that Hillary Clinton is a demon and she is just appearing human.
1: Yeah. My my first political memory was hearing Rush Limbaugh talk about Hillary Clinton and how evil she was when mm. I was in like third grade listening to the radio. Yeah. All those forces, like right wing AM radio, started to become a thing really in the mid to late eighties, like almost around this time, just slightly after this. Sure. Was especially when Rush Limbaugh came to the fore, and that really again took up the kind of social cause where Reaganomics was social as well, but like based in economic stuff and these crazy right wing economic arguments and none of that ever went away like that's why as like specifically 80s is so much of the surface of this movie places you in it doesn't really feel dated to watch it because this system is exactly the same way now it's just more exponentially deranged since this movie was made so again it's one of those movies like to me like network almost that seems oddly prophetic and also like brazil and if anything some aspects are slightly worse now <laughs>
0: I thought you boys understood. It's business. That that's all it is. You still don't get it, do you boys? There ain't
2: no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything. The whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. What's wrong with having a good for a change? Now they're gonna let us have a good if we just help them. They're gonna leave us alone.
0: Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. You do it to your own kind. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team.
2: Yeah, I agree i think that this movie feels like it was made today there are i think some telling things that are a little different but i mean reagan i think we've gone through a few different phases in between but that we are kind of back in this like sort of hellscape version of reagan's 80s reign and that we're really seeing sort of the consequences of what that bred and that may have been more subtle (laughs) back then in ways and now we all have the sunglasses on i guess or a certain number of us have the sunglasses on, and it's just like impossible not to see kind of how ugly and decrepit this is. It's cool. like it feels just and
1: I think the like thing that happened in the fall of 2016 was the consequence and the symptom of the way that this exact system that these movies are criticizing was responding to. Like, it's it, this is the material result. Donald Trump himself. And all of his wealth is the material result of a society arranged this same way.
0: Mm -hmm. And all of the unemployed people... All the people who are struggling in America, who are largely the people who voted for Trump, are the ones who are suffering based on what this movie is about and what is going on in it. Also, Mitch McConnell looks like we are seeing him with the sunglasses on, regardless of <laughs> whether or not true. we're uh, That is we're factually
1: him. correct. <laughs> Our fact checker department has been rehired and they have verified this. Yeah, and obviously
2: <laughs> the media has been talked about a lot in the way that it both led to the election of Donald Trump and also is keeping these voters stoked and really dividing people and making people are kind of in their own silos of their two-minute hate, although it's been more of like a two-year hate now. <laughs> the fact that this movie just so kind of blatantly states that, it's a it's a theme that's run through I think science fiction a lot is... Television, you know, being sort of a brainwashing mechanism, but to have that pointed out so blatantly in this movie is just really astounding and kind of chilling. I I feel like this movie, for as silly as it is, there are moments like when he first puts on those sunglasses that are actually quite chilling, despite like not looking realistic. But there's just there's something about the aesthetic of the effects that I think makes it scarier. That they're slightly like campy looking. Like,
1: well, and it's also like it it they take a good long time to get you super up close to the creatures. So you don't actually see like all that much of them until a certain point. And and so again, those strokes are broad, but I think they're painted really masterfully. And, and I, I have a hard time thinking of other movies that I think attempt narratively to do something so ambitious and actually pull it off like that. Well,
0: one thing that's kind of interesting when you look at the, the, the political landscape of this movie, and also the narrative landscape of what's revealed is it's kind of like the Body Snatchers movies, but it's all happened. Like, this happened decades ago, and it's like the it's, it's almost like this is a sequel to the 50s Body Snatchers. Absolutely. That, that you know, it succeeded. They ended up replacing all of the powerful people in the world, and now they're running it, and eventually they're not going to need us anymore. But for now, they need humans, so they They are going to just replace everybody.
2: Yeah, it's very bleak in that way, even though it's kind of a funny movie and a silly movie. That overall underlying worldview is pretty bleak, in that, like, it all happened and we didn't even notice. Like, there was no resistance. A few people are kind of fighting back against it, and yet the system is winning. The end of this movie, I think, is so interesting because it basically starts on what could be the beginning of an entirely different movie. Absolutely. And you want to see, like, what's going to happen, but it ends on this moment of real uncertainty. Where it's just like the very last scene is ridiculous and and very 80s of a couple having sex, and the woman realizes that the man she's having sex with is one of these um, alien creatures. So gross. And it just leaves you hanging there and you're like, you don't know, like, what's going to happen? Are they going to murder everyone? Like, are humans going to be able to fight back now that they can see the truth? Like, there's no indication of what could possibly happen. But I do, in a way, love that it leaves you on this moment of uncertainty because this is the most consequential moment of the movie. And yet it's ending before we even know what's happening to that. There's something also very unsettling about that. Anything
0: could happen. Well, I think there's also this level of what would happen if suddenly there was something that could convince everyone in the world that capitalism is a lie. Right. And that capitalism is evil and that the American dream is a fantasy made up to convince people to consume more. And if you could just magically all in one instant reveal that to everyone in the world, right, what you would like, happen? Put
1: acid in the water supply, and, yeah. Like yeah. everyone wakes up mm-hmm. all at and,
0: once, and realistically, like the sequel to They Live is global chaos, right? Uh, revolutions, overthrow, and war and genocide for Ma- centuries. maybe,
1: maybe. That's not the, the, but that's not like the well, only I mean, possible outcome. What,
0: what other than like a replication of French Revolution or Russian Revolution would this really lead to?
1: Well, I mean, I think it like really matters what kind of revolution sure. happens. Sure, like, okay.
0: But, I mean... I don't know. I'm not saying that humanity would not be able to recover from something like this if they actually were able to win and unify against the invading alien force. But what the guy tells them as, they are, uh, as they're being led around and escorted around this facility because he thinks that they're in on it too and they're part of the, the humans that are okay with this... Um, he's saying, like, it's done. It's happened. The entire world is controlled by them. Mm -hmm. So they have all the military force, they have all the military power. If they were to be overthrown, they're the ones who are running everything. I think that, like, society would probably collapse if they were to be extracted. You know, when, when we talk about social change, when we talk about economic change in our country, it's something that can't happen overnight. It's something that does have to happen in stages over several years. It would be dark I do, times, for I don't, sure. I don't <laughs> yeah. really agree with that, though, because no. our system
1: does move overnight when it's to give rich people more
0: money. Sure. Like, that's the thing, yeah. and
1: it's like, again... Like, but that's
0: moving further in the same direction. That's, that's part of the phasing of, yes, right, yes, right. overnight changes occur, like right. the horrible tax bill that passed this year, but that kind of overnight movement is shifting around dollars away from the poor and to the rich, but it's not something to the effect of we're going to eliminate giant numbers of people that are controlling what's happening in cash flow, et cetera. Like, Like imagine just stock market doesn't exist anymore. And how that would impact to the world. That. I know, me too. But, <laughs> but um, just you know, if it were just left a gaping hole, that would create chaos.
1: And yeah, like Chris, it would be interesting to like see where it went after that. Yeah, after well, that moment. You know, I th- think
2: that you could argue that we are seeing it now.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: that too. because I think that this election really opened up a lot of people's eyes. In good ways and bad, but to seeing how other people think and to kind yes. of tribalizing people, and and now I think both sides are seeing each other as monsters, and we are kind of having to live with the oh, like you you're from this camp of people and you see things this way, mm-hmm. and we aren't sure if we can even you know coexist with you, like your your views are so alien to us and they're and they're bothering us, and we want you all to go away or change your mind, you know and And I think we are kind of wrestling with that. Like, oh, half of our country is this. Like, how are we going to go on with that?
1: Well, but see, at the end of it, even that itself reflects the system, too. The lines that we're taught to draw are tribal and team-based, and our politics in this country is entirely team-based. It's not even based on actual ideas or ideology. Yeah. Like, right-wingers aren't remotely conservative in any sense of that actual word. No, yeah. But they still get away in every level with calling themselves that. And we still run our country according to Reagan's demented trickle-down theories, like, the Reagan tax cuts are all still in place, as are the ones that happened under Bush One and under George W. Bush. And the only America I have ever lived in is the one where we have basically disinvested in society. So, again, the collapse of what happens after, that's also a thing that the people who organize power in society are responsible for creating. Mm-hmm. There's also disaster happening now under that system. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I do think, again, this movie kind of sets itself apart in a way by saying that at the end of the day even the strong wrestler guy can't single-handedly kick or kill his way out of this, that there needs to be collective action and to scale that up beyond just the individual. But yeah, I also do appreciate that the story ends there.
2: Yeah, now that I just think about it, is the sex scene just kind of mirrors that feeling of like when your husband is a Trump voter and all of a sudden you're just like, oh my God, I'm having sex with a a monster or, you know, your parents or something like that, just like... Revealing <laughs> having sex with your parents. No. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> just the reveal that that's who they are and yes. that it felt kind of like that moment of like just like this. The scales utter falling away. Yeah. Well, I think yes. there's also,
0: like, it, it's kind of interesting in the last year of events following Me Too. Quite mm-hmm. often these people that we would see very regularly in media suddenly became monsters to a majority of the population that, you know, you can't watch House of Cards because what you're seeing there is no longer just an actor playing a part. It's It's someone who has become a monster in many people's eyes.
2: Yeah, and that also is such a complicated ecosystem of its own, mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood, in a way that, like, these are showing these kind of entrenched things that are really, like, it's, like, you pull one mask away, and then there's just, like, so many more, you know? it's it, There's never any, like, all right, we've eradicated the evil, we right. can go back to everything. It's, like, it's just, like, so entrenched in everything.
1: Well, and it's also a matter of how the system of the entertainment business is arranged, how it's funded what it operates in a business fashion to actually do. That's an industry that at every level, as a business matter, harbors monstrous people and facilitates their monstrous behavior. And as long as social movements get hamstrung, focusing on the individual monsters that get found out, there's no focus on what has to change in the system.
2: Mm -hmm. And yet they also make movies like They Live and Brazil and Sorry to Bother You. So it's
1: those are the exceptions rather than the mainstay but they also get the most attention
0: when you look at awards or critics they attempt to highlight as much as they can the movies that are going to enlighten or enliven the population you know it's been going on forever that the oscars have been a place of progressive films regardless of the time and you know there are exceptions to that of course but i think that usually that's the case where we're seeing stuff that is pushing social boundaries that's trying to get people to open their minds being celebrated but yes you're right in that a majority of the films that are released a majority of the films that make money if we look at the top 10 grossing films of most years are not going to be particularly progressive. Not to say they're bad
1: Not to disagree but just to say like that's happening because it's entertainment as a product and the means of production are owned by people who go for the easiest, quickest largest return on their investment the quickest. Right. The product that they make and sell is still reflective of the, like, white supremacist patriarchy, so the product and the end result in the end films that do get funded and financed and released are going to tend to be less diverse and have less challenging voices. And it is always a push and pull, but we're also, again, living in a world where unions and collective bargaining rights have been beat back so much that most people don't really have the power to do that and to work together to change reality in the same way that they used to. There's another fun fact that I just wanted to insert in this about They Live. Every single one of these alien-like skeletal reptilian creatures is played by the stunt coordinator Jeff Imada, who is a renowned stunt coordinator and performer with a very, very extensive career. He plays literally every single male and female creature
0: in this entire movie. I feel like that must only be because they only had one face mask. they like they they got one mask and they they ran out of budget. So they live, uh, but they don't buy in bulk. Yeah, it must have been at some level more expensive to film him playing fifty different people in one scene than to buy more makeup or more masks <laughs> or something. But that's that's crazy. Yeah. I wanted to just mention
2: Meg Foster cuz she was a very interesting presence in this movie like she's not someone I was I had seen in like right. anything else but she just her eyes are so haunting and yeah. I found her very very alluring as a character
1: she was really alluring as a character, and she plays Holly, the love interest in the movie. Love and, interest, uh, like kidnapping interest. Uh, <laughs> Nada basically like commandeers her and is gonna basically conscript her into helping him figure the sunglass situation out <laughs> until and she throws
2: him out a window. Yeah. Then
1: she throws him out a window and he rolls down like an entire cliff. It's <laughs> awesome. It's amazing.
2: It's a really good like <laughs> it's, female it's, moment. It yeah, is such yeah. a,
1: exactly. It's like such an empowered moment, and she is just a really interesting character and i like that version of a relationship that begins in such an antagonistic understandably antagonistic way like i feel like if brazil had sketched out that kind of interaction a little bit more then that would have made it work a lot better for me
2: yeah i i get a little disappointed that she turns out to be evil and then because i really think that they had something yeah well together. it
0: actually it, make, it <laughs> makes me feel better about a scene that happens earlier with her because When he tells her to put on the glasses, she says, I will do anything you say, I will put on the glasses, and I will see anything you tell me to see. And so then he realizes in that moment, he won't be able to trust if she really sees them or if she's just lying. And so his own sanity isn't being checked in that moment, which is really what he wants. But if he had had her put on the glasses, she would have actually seen them, assuming that she wasn't part of the evil plot all along. She would have actually seen them and then she would have genuinely helped him and not thrown him out the window. And so that logic change and that decision that his character makes, I find frustrating. But the reveal ultimately would have been the same if she is part of this conspiracy. She knew what the glasses were going to show her, and she didn't care. She was helping them anyway. So all of her actions would have been the same throughout. It's just she wouldn't have had that opportunity to pretend to be his friend at the Mm. end. It only really works for me because of that.
2: I don't know. I wanted them to run off together. Love Love
1: conquers all. Right. (laughs) I wanted that ending. Where was Sid Sheinberg when we needed him? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. I like the fact that he dies. I like the fact that he's a martyr for his cause, and that you know we have a person that sacrificed himself for the good of the world. Basically. And yet, even that is handled so
2: like nonchalantly. He's yeah. just kind of like, oh, I'm dead." Like, there's no, mo- there's no real sorrow. Well, that helicopter
0: also waits a nice long time to shoot him. They're uh, they're definitely giving him a really good warm up to firing one shot from a derringer at a satellite <laughs> that kills their whole plan. This is a well constructed thing that they have that a shot from a daring drill, like they better not have had any debris. Why did they sell that
1: satellite with ammonium nitrate? That was really a bad design decision and construction decision on their part. It was a very explosive satellite. Yeah. (laughs) Any final thoughts on They Live? They don't, (laughs) they died. I definitely highly recommend They Live, even if you're not, like, a super political person. It's a movie that is entertainment on a whole bunch of different levels, and it is not subtle. It's very directly dramatizing the main political stuff that it's talking about, and keeps it in the context of these, albeit very silly, characters.
0: (laughs) My wife has never seen it. She watched a little bit of it with me as I was re-watching it this week. So and you did not have a They Live-themed wedding We didn't wedding have a They Live-themed well. no, wedding, no, no. no. John Carpenter was left off the table the entire time.
1: <laughs> he could have performed, too. He could have done his music. He oh. does his soundtracks.
0: <laughs> yeah, he could have written the vows, too. But <laughs> as she was watching it, she could not sustain any attention on this thing. So I would say I agree. I would recommend this movie to people. But I also think that if you're not someone who can get past a certain level of 80s camp, this movie might not be for you. that's Um, very true yeah yeah i wanted to ask you guys which of these two movies do you think resonates more now that's a good question because i think that um in my mind brazil holds up so much better as a movie and as a film is more watchable and has more nuance and complexity but i think that they live is so much more directly about what we are experiencing in the world today and what is i think on a lot of americans minds every day with politics and trump and all of the craziness that's going on in dc yeah and
1: i mean just artistically they speak from such different places where i really do see brazil as just this exercise in opulence of crafting such a detailed world and showing us every single level of it all at once. And yeah, it's definitely, I think, Travis, you were right, like more British in flavor almost. Mm -hmm. And John Carpenter's American approach to these very similar themes, I think, is ultimately a lot more American. But it's also like so cleverly structured that to me that elevates the art of it as well.
2: Yeah, I feel like they live, especially watching it the second time, hit this kind of nerve that, I mean, I guess it was intended to... But even John Carpenter, you know, didn't quite foresee this, or, you know, not this exact thing.
0: (laughs) Well, I'd say that he probably, I mean, if you look back at 1988, I'm sure that you could say, like oh my god, I'm sleeping with somebody who voted for Reagan twice, and they're planning on voting for Bush? Exactly. I think that that same same perception could be there. I think that we've just seen it a lot more clearly today, and we're Mm. living it out in our 30s, as opposed to, you know, when we were three or four.
2: So yeah, I mean, I think Brazil is more of a timeless movie and I think speaks to a lot of, you know, because it takes so much from a book that was written in 1949 and is still resonates today that it is maybe speaks more to humanity at large or, you know, sort of our government at large. And yet they live really feels like a very like 1980s to right now movie Yes, um, that may or may not, hopefully maybe won't have any relevance at a certain point, but right now it definitely does.
0: Yeah. It's also much more American, I would say. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you mentioned that like there's that kind of British American dichotomy there, but even more so um a majority of the developed world is moving toward more socialist societies. And like we are seeing on a consistent basis how they may have their troubles, they may have their issues that come up, they may have, you know, white right-wing uprisings that happen from time to time in different countries, but generally their progress is moving toward a dire- direction that is away from capitalism and toward investing in their social populace. And America is going in the opposite direction. And so They Live, to me, is so much more about that where, you know, we have countries like Germany that hugely regulate uh, any sort of advertising of medical devices or Mm -hmm. medications Mm -hmm. because that is unhealthy. That is insane that you would try to market and commercialize medicine. But in America, it's all the rage.
1: Side effects include. Right, exactly.
2: (laughs) My computer died, so I have nothing else to say. (laughs) Well, then. Technology has told us that it is time to end. It's time to end.
1: (laughs) And that's all the rowdiness we've got time for on When We Were Young. On the next episode of our podcast, we're going to take you home for Christmas, get you wet, feed you after midnight, and then turn all the lights on as we revisit 1984's Yuletide Creature Feature Gremlins and its 1990 sequel, Gremlins 2, The New Batch. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. You can follow us on all the social medias, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes, where you should also leave us a review of five stars or more. I have been Seth Pearson.
0: I've been Travis Duclo. And I'm
2: all out of bubblegum. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's
2: one thing I'm certain
0: of. Return. I will to old
1: Brazil.